So if I call you Andrew or if I call Andrew Aaron, sorry guys. <laughs> Just run with it. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 21 of the iFreak Show. This is our panel. We have Ben Sherman. Happy Apple Christmas Day. And hello. Apple Christmas Day. Yeah. Today's the, the launch day. We're going to find out all about in like an hour. Oh, I know. That's this right. will be all old news by the time this show comes out. But uh, It's the only thing all of us are thinking about. I can't. <laughs> I can't believe that's right. We're, we're already on the clock, Chuck. Okay. <laughs> we also have Andrew Madsen. Hi from Salt Lake City. Uh, Rod Schmidt. Hello from Salt Lake City as well. James Zuber. Hello. I just returned from the north shore of Lake Superior. Where I was teaching bears to code iOS. Awesome. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and we have a special guest, and that's Aaron Douglas. Hey, how's it going? Uh, saying hi from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Pete would be so proud of me I didn't botch your name. <laughs> so uh, we have you on this week to talk about scalable cloud apps. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I asked you before the show, I'm going to ask you again, how does that relate to iOS programming? So I've noticed that um, a lot of us iOS devs um, come from uh, more of the front-end programming arena, so JavaScript and CSS, and it's just it's kind of a logical step into iOS app development. I came from a Java enterprise background, so I'm very familiar with writing apps that are behind other apps. And I noticed that a lot of iOS developers are afraid of integrating their app with a, a server and there's a lot of apps that have to talk to other users or there's central data. So um, I think it's a really important topic just because apps can be so much more powerful if they are connected with other people. Absolutely. So are you talking about API services like Facebook or Twitter, or are you talking about uh, more of the back-end systems like Parse? Yeah, it's more of the back-end systems like Parse. There's a lot of data that I've, you know, the, the primary use case that I see is that you have an iPhone app and you want that data to sync to the same user's iPad without them having to worry about it. You know, that should be iCloud, but we know it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that, that will be the announcement today. iCloud <laughs> is, is much better yeah. now. <laughs> we promise. That's right. We gave it some epic hack. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, couldn't hurt, I, right? I don't know if we've like really talked at length about like the trials and tribulations of iCloud core data, but like from my understanding, I haven't done it at all. But uh, from my understanding, like the the uh, what is it, the plus serialization or whatever, the uh, and like user defaults synchronization and the document stuff is is pretty well done or pretty reliable. Right. Oh but, yeah, that's that's definitely spot on. But for larger well, slash structured data. Core data, um, iCloud has sort of gone through its, uh, it's gone through the ringer and a lot of people just sort of ditched it. Lots of people have had problems with the document stuff as well. Yeah, documents, Uh, document stuff is possible to get working with a lot of trouble and work. Core data syncing is just not possible to get working. I think that's, is that 100% fact? (laughs) (laughs) It's, Uh, you know, the funny thing is it's easy to get it started. But then you start realizing that there are all, all these cases where what if somebody signs out? You know, what if there's no network and then they sign in with a different Apple ID? There's just so many use cases that we as developers have to care about that it's painful. 
Yeah. yeah I think the, from my perspective, uh, I think iCloud Core Data just never even enters the picture because we typically build apps that have like a web component or an Android app as well. And so immediately off iCloud's off the table. So it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, I, I suppose I've been fortunate that I haven't had to tackle those problems, but, but yeah, a lot of times we're building our own API. So we're in charge of defining both ends and making sure that the synchronization works. I think the reality of it is, is that as much as we'd like to ignore Android and other platforms, um, we really can't. And you're right, web is a really big component to apps making it feel harmonious. So um, when we're talking about scalable cloud services, are we talking about using other uh, systems like uh, Amazon S3 and then hosting your own stuff? Or do you usually just recommend people go with something like uh, these hosted services that are out there and kind of ready to go? I think uh, I'm a little bit more pragmatic as I age here. Uh, I used to like doing the hacking thing, getting my own app running. But more and more, the reality becomes that it's hard to do an app right on a server and get security right and get synchronization working right. I mean, synchronization seems simple, but is one of the hugest issues in uh, programming today, I think. So I kind of like to use other services so I don't have to worry about it as much. And that's where Amazon is a great service, especially with EC2. Um, but you have to be fairly aware of the infrastructure behind it, unless you're using one of their um, uh, database services. And they do have an API. But I found services that provide the whole thing with an SDK to make your life easier, like Parse or even um, Microsoft has an Azure mobile client that you can use with your app. So what, what do you look for in a service like that? Something that has a good free tier. I mean, that's honestly one of the big things. You can't see paying out of pocket to start trying to use a service. Um, something that has really awesome documentation. Uh, there's nothing worse than trying to get something started in your app and you have really nowhere to go except for forums from the first start. Obviously, something that has a lot of street cred, other people that have used it. And uh, something that has really great uh, native support with an SDK for the platform you're working on. Uh, I don't like to, you know, it's great using SOAP and, uh, not SOAP, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it uh, here, folks. <laughs> yes. It's great so, using a REST service with JSON, but I really like having native wrappers around everything. SOAP is dirty. Yes. That's, that was a very bad slip. <laughs> SOAP seems like the thing to do at the time, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't worry. We have an API. It's called webservice1.asmx. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, so I, I have to ask then, with these services, you said you don't want to worry about how to handle all the syncing and stuff, but shouldn't you be aware of how your your service provider does it? Yes. I would say any service provider that tells you that sync is magical and it just works, you probably want to walk away from that. That's, <laughs> that's sort of what we heard with iCloud. I like to have a little bit more introspection about how things are working, uh, meaning being able to put breakpoints in their SDK or um, being able to see the traffic on the website to monitor data. Things like Parse have a great data explorer so that you can actually see the data that's hitting their side of the whole system. Um, it's great for debugging and figuring out what's actually going on. So what kinds of uh, auth authentication do they provide usually? 
most of the services provide their own type of, uh, it's like an open auth type of variant where there's a token being passed back and forth. I know Parse lets you create a user object through their SDK, uh, which you can assign custom ACLs or access control lists so that you can provide public data to your app users and also lock down the data. So the, the API, well, I should say the SDK, provides a very easy mechanism for doing registration. Uh, forgot my password. Um, and then trying to uh, delete your account. So all these functionalities, this is, these are available to kind of the user of the of the app after you've implemented their SDK? Yes, that's correct. Um, pretty much most of the good ones uh, provide a base set of screens that you can use in your app to, you know, to create an account, to log in, or to log out. And then they're fairly customizable. Parse has done a really good job with their screens. Uh, now, Symperium also has uh, a test application or a, uh, a nib that you can include into your project for a, a basic set of screens. But ultimately, it comes down to a, a block-based method call saying, log in with these credentials. And most of the SDKs out there for services will kind of store that stuff in a private area so you don't have to worry about remembering a token. It's just when you bring up the uh, library and you tell it to start parse, it'll know that you're already logged in. So if I have an app that I'm backing onto Parse and you have an app that you're backing onto Parse, I'm, I'm wondering, do I set up a different set of credentials for my system than what you set up for your system if the same user is using them both? Yes, definitely. Everybody's in their own, like each app instance. So if you create an account with Parse and you tell it, okay, I have an app, here's my app name, they get their own kind of like a private store, a private bucket for everything that's in your app. Uh, there isn't a, a shared pool. Everything's private to the actual app instance. Uh, that also lets you create a dev version of your app. Uh, so you can switch out like the uh, token IDs that you get from Parse when you create an app. So if you want to test it in an area that doesn't affect other users, it's fairly easy to do that. So what what is a good use case for a service like this? Uh, so the first use case that I needed was a way, I have a, a simple migraine diary application in the App Store, and it's just something that I've been working on on the side for a couple of years now. And I wanted to provide a way for people that had used their iPhone to do all their data entry into their migraine diary, a way to put that data onto their iPad. So if they go to their doctor's office, there's a way for them to share all of their history uh, with their doctor. Uh, I tried using iCloud to start with, and it was a very, very much of a rabbit hole. It looked really easy, looked very straightforward, but it ended up being a real pain in the neck. So I, I backed away from that, and I started looking at these cloud data providers, and I found that um, there's a couple that really piqued my interest. Uh, there's a couple that actually provide a NS uh, persistent store behind core data so that all you have to do is really plug it into your core data stack. Uh, but I wanted something that was a little bit more, a little bit more control over syncing the data. And I liked parse because I could set up my own routine to do the synchronization from the standpoint of copying data out of the core data into um, parse. Um, and I found that uh, that's probably the best use case scenario is that you want to start sharing the data with, people's uh, devices that they have. It's more than just one device. So that's it's really, I think, the, the most base use use case for having one of these services in your app. 
So Aaron, so you talked about kind of migrant entries. So how does the SDK handle like basic operations, like creating a new one? Did you just get kind of CRUD operations? Do you have more control, granular control of what you're doing? Sure. The you know specifically talking about Parse right now, they have uh, the base object is called PF object, and everything that comes out of Parse is a PF object in one one way or shape or form. So it's really easy to just create a new PF object and you set the fields that you want on it. You don't have to create any, like with um, using core data, you can generate classes and it has all the accessor methods. The PF object is really just kind of a key value store. So you set whatever you want on it. You can expect that data to come back when you retrieve the object. Uh, so you have to kind of manage the names of the fields, uh, but it's really straightforward. If you want to delete an object, you just tell the object to delete. And uh, at some point, you have to tell Parse, the API, save. And you can either have it be a blocking call, or you can tell it save eventually, or basically save whenever. So if I'm offline, Parse will manage that object and kind of put it in an internal queue. So the next time it gets network connectivity, that object is synced. Okay, how much how much control do you have over what goes on in the back end? Is that completely transparent? Uh, from the standpoint of knowing how things are saving on the app, is that what you're thinking of? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can tell, you can ask an object if it's been saved up to the uh, the parse cloud. Uh, you can tell if there was an error. I believe you can do validation logic. You can also uh, ask the back end for any new objects. Uh, you can add cloud code, so you can actually put a JavaScript method or uh, routine in Parse on the website, and you can actually retrieve data through one of your routines that does queries or whatever you want. So, I mean, you pretty much have visibility for everything that you put into Parse. Um, some of the SDK things are a little bit more under the hood. Um, from what I've heard, you can pretty much poke through and listen to notifications and figure out things that are going on that you normally don't have to care about. Okay. Yeah. Very cool stuff. What, so you talked about it being kind of like a key value store. What kind of querying capabilities do you have? The querying is awesome and also limited. Uh, you can pretty much, if, if you can create an NS predicate, you can query for it out of parse. So if you're familiar with core data and querying data out of core data, uh, that's effectively the same thing. A limitation comes around the number of records you can return. Uh, they have a max limit of a thousand records being returned in any PF query. Uh, there's ways around that. You can do paging. Uh, you can also try to limit the number of entries coming back by some other means. Um, you can also associate objects. So if you're looking for, if you have a, uh, Try to think of a good example. Well, in the migraine diary, if you have a food trigger, you, know, you eat a, eat some type of food and it triggers a migraine. Well, if you had a relationship between that food item and all of the migraine diary entries that have said this food triggered this migraine, you can retrieve those right off that object without having to issue a query. So there's ways to structure your data to get beyond the limits that are imposed by their API. Okay, is there any kind of kind of relational functionality? Yes. At all of this? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you can take any PF object and associate it with another PF object, and it just automatically associates that um, in the cloud data. It's pretty easy to do. Can you associate, say, for, well, I'm, I'm so I'm pretty uh, comfortable with a lot of the ORMs out there that are 
you have this kind of object and it associates to this other kind of object. Mm-hmm. And so is, is that how it works or is it just this general object relates to this other general object and there's some kind of name for the relationship that it has? Nope. It's actually, uh, it's really basic. It's going back down to the, the key value type of thing. So if you have the migraine diary object or the migraine object, you just say set trigger and you associate that as the value. And if you assign a PF object to another PF object, it knows it's a relationship. How do you know, like, if you wanted to receive a list of objects and sort of quote unquote join the additional records or like include the other records in the same response? Can you tell it to do that? Yep. You can just use, uh, the, like dot notation. So if you want to go down the, the object hierarchy when you're re- issuing a query, uh, that's all you have to do. It's kind of like however you would write an NS predicate with, uh, standard objects. But if you just want to say, like, give me the last ones, but also include their related records, because otherwise you would get, like, the select n plus one problem where as you render each table view cell, for instance, if you then touched a property on that object, you would... uh, Am I correct in saying that it would go fetch that from the network? Uh, Or do you you get all the objects and at that point they're sort of uh, disconnected from parts? Yeah, there's a, a limit to how deep it'll go. Um, I think you can set that limit on any type of uh, query, but there's, I believe there is no limit to the object hierarchy. I have not at least run into a limit, but also I don't, I try not to keep my, I try to keep my object graph pretty, pretty structured. So that's only like one or two levels deep. So you don't run into issues like that. Um, but you can actually cache a query. So if you are always asking parse for a set number of objects with a, particular query, you can tell it to cache that on the device. Um, you can tell it how often it should go out to parse to figure out, has this query been updated? Um, that allows you to do a lot of offline things without having to do a network hit. So what other platforms are supported by parse? Uh, Android, Windows Phone, uh, Mac OS. Uh, there's a JavaScript library, so you can just do pure uh, UI with parse. Uh, there's a couple other ones, too, the you can do anything with .NET, so it's more than just Windows Phone. Yeah, there's the it, Unity UI for Linux. Yeah, there's tons of uh, integration with other platforms with Parse. They're probably one of the most complete, I would say. So one question that I have about a setup like this is, when is your app kind of too much for a service like this? I would say uh, you probably will start running into issues with big data. So if you have millions of records... And I, I granted, you have to ask yourself, why do you want millions of records for an app on a mobile device? But in the case where if you're trying to run something like a, a hospital, uh, actually, that's a bad, a bad use case because of the whole HIPAA laws. But um, <laughs> Right, so HIPAA is an edge case where this probably wouldn't be a great way to go. Yeah, so, if, I mean, if you had a lot of existing data and you were trying to, transform that data to go into parse to back all your store or your mobile devices. Um, you run into those limits. So you have the thousand record limit on any query. Um, if that would affect how your app interacts with the user, uh, that's where you start to break down. I have seen parse being used as an intermediary layer between the real backend for a enterprise platform and then the, the web those two, like you can actually call services from Parse to be able to perform any type of data 
uh, transformation between systems. So if you can treat the mobile layer as something as a kind of a temporary or not every, it doesn't have your entire business in there. Um, that's one way of handling it, but uh, I have not seen a good way of handling millions and millions of rows in parse without having to do some funky things with your data. I mean, so, it seems, seems more like you're, you're dealing with like one person's data and it's, you're sort of a, a natural limit on what that person might create. Do you think that that makes it sort of ill-suited for your larger, like, uh, this is probably another terrible example, but if you were doing something like uh, something social like Twitter or something sure. like that, it seems like it might be a really poor fit. Well, since Facebook bought Parse uh, a couple months ago, uh, I have a very strong suspicion that Parse will become better suited towards big data um, just because Facebook is a huge object graph. Uh, and I think if they're, if they're looking at improving the service for the larger situations that um, some app developers need to handle, uh, I think it'll definitely be coming down the road. But I think the original use case for Parse when the uh, founders created it was for the small app developer that needs to have a backend that just works between, between each of the users. I have to say that, uh, you know, I, I do primarily Ruby and Rails for my clients, and a system like this, you know, I, I like having all the control, but it, it definitely has some appeal in the fact that they've thought of all of the issues that I don't have to worry about if I wanted to, you know, set something up for my iOS apps. Sure. I mean, really, the to me, as an app developer, the thing I care about the most is offline. Uh, there's so much you can do online that will break when it's in an offline mode. Um, and having a great SDK that handles offline and caching and cache expiry and, you know, all of that to me makes or breaks a solution. And I think Parse does a really good job with giving the controls to you so that you can do things offline without having to make your app unusable. How do they handle that? Do they, do they have some kind of caching object or class or? Yeah, there's a whole set of files that get created when you install the Parse SDK into your app. Um, so they have a lot of bells and whistles under the hood that handle detection of synchronization conflicts and just the offline caching in general. Uh, you have to be aware of when you want things to work in an offline mode in the, in the concept of cache querying or query caching rather. Uh, so you have to know that if there's a, a query that just absolutely has to run when you're offline, uh, that you have to make sure that when you create the query that you set the cache type and the expiration on it. Um, so it's not completely automatic in, in the sense that you don't have to care about offline, but um, they do make that support very well um, documented in their API. I think a key part of this whole structure that makes it... Um I guess more viable for like a real solution is the fact that they have like a JavaScript API as well, or maybe mm-hmm. not JavaScript. They have like a, an API on the web that you can just hit from your own service. So if you did have, say you had an application that you didn't have a server originally and you started off with this sort of parse thing to synchronize data, then later on when to supplement your own or migrate to and from it later, like that's, you know, a supported uh, operation because you can hit it from an API you know, however you need to. I think that that's kind of a key differentiator between Parse and some of these others that where it may be some sort of black box that you're putting your data into. I don't right. know. To me, that seems a really important uh, thing to call out. One of the 
the times that I wanted to use Parse with uh, one of the enterprise clients when I was working for a, a software company, we dealt with a large enterprise that was very, very much stuck in like the 80s waterfall development methods. Um, they were a manufacturing company, so a lot of their development was structured around developing physical products, and that's kind of how their software went with it. They wanted to write an iPad app to help manage the sales process for their equipment that they sell. Well, we originally had suggested putting an intermediary layer, kind of like a, uh, I had suggested parse, but they, our app would talk to parse back and forth. That's, you know, our API would only hit parse, it puts it in the cloud, and then they would, on their side, talk to parse through just the regular REST API send it data updates or, you know, kind of maybe even shuttle things through so that if we ask parse for some data and there's nothing there that it goes back and hits the back end just because their, what they called restful API on their side, on their servers was uh, really kind of a hodgepodge mix of visual basic and C sharp in ASMX files. Um, it was to the point where I would do a request one day against their API and the JSON coming back would not have quote marks. It would be the single tick marks. And I asked one of the developers, like, what happened? I, this is not correctly formed JSON. And he's like, oh, I, I switched a character. I forgot, you know. And I found out that they manually mapped all of their data into JSON by hand, you know, in the code. There was no mapper that they were using. So <laughs> things like that will break your app, and people will blame your app and not the back end. And I think... Being able to separate yourself from that back end, it's a huge deal in mobile apps. It's like a firewall. So how do you how do you sell kind of using parse as an kind of in between layer to kind of the companies? Do they mainly just hit kind of a RESTful API, or do they have kind of native like Java or like .NET type clients they can use? So they can, if they have a .NET application, they could easily just take the parse API and build it into their app, and then provide some sort of methods that's they push data on a, st a scheduled basis and they pull results back from um, the parse API. Um, they can also just hit RESTful URLs and pull the data on JSON if they don't want to majorly in, uh, impact their app development by including this third-party library because some enterprise people consider that a security concern. There's no reason why you can't use the RESTful API just directly. Um, but it's, it's really easy to include it with a Java application or a .NET application, and you have the PF object right there. Okay, the back-end clients, kind of .NET, Java, do they have any, any other ones? Objective-C, so you can, if you have a Mac OS app, and not anybody uses web objects anymore, that was Java, but you can pretty much write a back-end app in any language that's being used today, and they provide support for that type of uh, language. Okay. So what other kind of systems did you look at before kind of choosing going with Parse? Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of some of them. I know Heroku was one of them. We looked at, and at that time, Microsoft's Azure cloud service for the mobile client uh, was just starting up. So their API was kind of weak. That was more of a better solution for them because it was in .NET. They, you know, their developers could support that, that cloud uh, application. Uh, yeah, now I mean nowadays there's there's kind of a distinction between like Azure, the 
cloud-based hosting platform and then Windows Azure mobile services, which is kind of a subset of that. It runs mm-hmm. on Windows Azure. Um, I spent a fair amount of time building an app for on Windows Azure, and it was similar to what you described Parse as. You know, you have a JavaScript sort of runtime on the server that you can run when you say insert records. Uh, so one thing you might do is like send a push notification using their JavaScript API on the server, and you configure that on the server so that when you say save a record on the phone, it will execute that JavaScript on the server and send push notifications or whatever. And you have you know similar things there. I don't know any of the high-profile apps that are that are using Windows Azure mobile services, but it seems pretty robust. I don't know. I was able to get pretty far with it. Um, ultimately, you know, from my perspective, I I do like kind of owning the data and that sort of piece. But you know, if I were to choose a like a platform to build a new app on, it, it would certainly be on my list of things to look at. Now, there's actually a big button in the Parse dashboard that says "Give me my data." Mm-hmm. And it will export everything into a JSON format, and you can just walk away then. I really respect the companies that do that because they recognize that it's important. It's an important decision to you to, for you to say you can walk away at any time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like kind of going back on the uh, the point you made about a free service. Like we want you to try this. We want you to believe in it. Not believe in it. Uh, we want you to um, experience it for yourself. You know. It's kind of like yep. money back guarantee or whatever. There's no risks. Um, I think that that big button that says "Give me your data" goes a really long way. Uh, plus, Definitely. I really actually like the parse, like the data browser or whatever they call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, you can. It's basically like a data grid in Microsoft Excel where you can you can put filters up top and you can limit the amount of data you're seeing back and you can modify data on the server, which is kind of scary in some sense. Uh, limitations are object. Associations are hard to do in those viewers. Um, they don't really have a good way of doing that. But the way around it is if you can, if your association is really simple, you can actually just add an NS array as one of your properties instead of it being a separate object. And that's pretty easy to see in the data browser. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned like Heroku and Amazon Web Services. To me, those are like just this entirely different class of. Uh, choices like if you wanted to build your own like scalable backend, mm-hmm. um, those are you know with those you would end up rolling your own entire application. You do something like Rails or Node.js or or whatever you want. But um, having built a fairly large uh, system on AWS and numerous ones on Heroku, um, Heroku is my platform of choice actually, uh, just because it's so easy to to write apps, deploy, and scale up and down. But I've spent a lot of time on AWS um, for the past couple of years, and it's so incredibly complicated. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like it's not like uh, oh, I need this scalable thing. Let's just throw it on AWS. Uh, uh, it there is so much stuff to learn, and you you literally have an API for uh, creating network cards and routers and internet gateways and route tables, and it you know it is truly like uh, programmable infrastructure. Uh, which is like a totally different environment. If you have people that specialize in that, uh, you can make something pretty robust on AWS, but uh, it's also pretty expensive. I would agree. <laughs> That's uh, one of the things that, especially with a lot of people who are indie iOS developers, it's pretty daunting when you see a system like that that's so configurable and so customizable. That's why I think some of the simpler solutions are a great stepping stone if you feel like you are going to reach a million users. It is pretty easy to go to a, a larger solution, building your own app, 
hiring somebody to do that for you. Um, so moving away from the, like a, a parser uh, is pretty easy to do. Do you have any, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if Symperium does this, but I've seen some demos of ones that will like uh, use WebSockets or, or long polling or something like that to do like a little bit more real-time interaction with, uh, with the phone. So like if you type something on the phone, it shows up immediately on the server. I know uh, Cheddar is a really good example of this where uh, Sam Sophus, he used um, Pusher to do, uh, I think, WebSockets, but where it's like more real-time interaction between uh, device and cloud. Yeah, I know Stemperium uses the, uh, it's kind of like Google Wave was, I can't remember the name of the the technical term behind the actual concept of that, but I know with Stemperium, it will will keep an open connection, it watches for changes. Um, I just started getting into it with, I just started at Automatic a couple months ago, and I uh, had not even really paid attention to Simperium, and now I started playing around with Simple Note, and I I see that there's a lot of great benefit in there if you do new real time updates between different apps that, or different um, devices that you have. Google Wave was kind of a bust, but the the technology behind it still lives on quite a bit with Google, and I think the Simperium SDK and API is really kind of spot on with if you need that real time updating. Even if you don't want the real time, just the conflict resolution and the way it handles sync is pretty elegant. It's a good topic to to talk about. Uh, what do these apps and or these uh, platforms in general offer for conflict re- resolution? And usually, is it usually like, like last in wins or uh, a lot of them are. Uh, some of them, it's really easy to ignore those conflicts and just kind of say, okay, uh, I win. I'm the last one here syncing. Um, in the case where you have one user trying to use multiple devices and they're trying to do a sync, then it makes sense. The last one in kind of is the winner. But if you're trying to do something with a group, like a group editor for a note, that's when you have to start getting into the more complex conflict resolution. You know, Symperium supports quite a bit of options when it comes to that. I haven't got into a deep dive yet, but it is, I'm impressed so far. So what are some of the other services out there other than, uh, Parse and Symperium? Uh, I used to have a list that I kind of maintain for myself, but there are um, a couple out there that I used to think were good players, but I've really I've been sticking with the big names in, in data synchronization like Parse and Microsoft Azure. But there's, I wish I could find my list here, but uh, I haven't actually tried to go beyond that because they've really been meeting my needs. Um, Superium is really the, the one that I've been finding that it's kind of stirring the pot for me. I don't know if other people have any other suggestions for things to I've, look at. I've heard of a few others. I'm trying to think of them right there's, now. Uh, Firebase is one that I've heard of. There's one called Helios by with Matt Thompson and Heroku. It looks so, really yes. good. So I have some experience with Helios and it's it's kind of a different offering in that it's all open source and you have to sort of assemble and configure it yourself. So I think that it's like a really good building block if you wanted to build your own, but you needed to start with something. Um, I think that, that one uses the AF incremental store, doesn't it? Yeah, and AF incremental store, to me, it's, it's still, um, it's this fascinating technology demo. That's that's kind of the way I still view it. I've uh, attempted to use it for a couple of apps, and I just don't think it's, I don't think it's ready. Uh, part mm-hmm. of that is that, your model tends to change over time and, and, uh, you know, with core data, you have to go through migrations and then you have to make sure that the API is in sync and what do you do about versioning? And 
there's a lot of that type of stuff. Um, however, it demos really well if you have like a lockdown database schema of like to do items or something. <laughs> you know, if it's mm-hmm. if your system is that simple and you can just take the core data schema you already have and drop it in or the managed object model, drop it in Helios or what is it? Rack core data is the one that's providing that, and it will um, generate a, a SQL database out of that and provide the API for read and write operations. Um, or cr- basic crud on top of that data. All that stuff is like really, really drop in simple, but f- extending it from there, like it's not going to do all the things that parse is going to do for you. Uh, like for instance, adding a new attribute to one of your models or all of your models, you're going to have to sort of take, w- take the starting point and sort of grow it yourself. So I think Helios is a really good solution, but it's more of the, in the build your own camp. And there's actually, I always keep forgetting about Dropbox. You know, they have a really awesome sync API. And if you have a more document-based application, um, that's probably a good one to look at. I got turned off by that. I saw quite a bit of comments about their API documentation after they released it. And it looks like it wasn't written by iOS developers. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> there, was some, there was some things like, uh, you know, perform this operation, but if it fails, you'll have an error. And typically with those signatures, you'd have like NS error star star so that mm-hmm. you can uh, allocate a pointer, uh, your own pointer for that, and uh, and send that in, and then it will be populated with something if the thing fails, and uh, where those the signatures were just NS error star. And it's kind of um, a little sloppy. It, somebody tweeted it. It looks like it's amateur hour over at Dropbox, which is <laughs> a little... Uh, <laughs> Critical, but I mean, this stuff is, you have to put this stuff under heavy scrutiny. It's going in your app. A lot of them are, are static libraries where you don't see the code. Um, and I think it's really important to, uh, to, I don't know, to be cautious about what you include in your app and what you decide to, to depend on. Definitely. Like one of the other things though, I, I always forget, um, that parse, they do provide a API for push notifications. Um, they also have a great store kit wrapper. Uh, so if you're selling things in your application, doing in-app purchase, uh, they have a great register receipt system that just kind of works between the different installs for that app. Um, a lot of the good APIs do have wrappers around at least push. Very nice. So if somebody decided to roll their own, do you have an ad- any advice for them? Uh, rethink it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you I were just, looking for the call chuck. The what? Call chuck, right? Yeah, exactly. No, I'm just I I can, but yeah. Anyway, um I guess I guess the thing is is say you do have like the HIPAA requirements or something that kind of preclude you from using something like this. Sure. Uh, uh there, Yeah, you what, know, what kind of things do people need to look to add and make sure that they cover? They are definitely going to have to start looking at uh both the app side and also the server side. It's not just something that uh, they have to spend all their time on the server side and it's just a matter of hitting API calls. Um, there's things that they can look at, like libraries. I mean, we talked about a few already, but uh, TI Core Data Sync is potentially one of the libraries that they can use internally in their app to hit custom services that they write. There are some providers, uh, like I believe Symperium also has the way for you to use your own server as... Um, kind of like appear on the data network. So if you are allowed to use Symperium but still want control over your data, you can kind of hook on your server into their data cloud so that you're uh, you're kind of a peer on that whole process. 
you don't own it, but you are part of it. But if you're going to write your own, uh, you need to make sure that you understand scaling, that you have true REST services so that you aren't trying to carry state across each request. Um, and you have to make sure that if servers go offline, that users can be redirected. So there's, I mean, there's a lot you have to worry about, especially infrastructure on the back end, to make sure that you're doing it right. And has anybody else dealt with scalable apps in the cloud than doing everything custom? Uh, we we don't. I, I I'm not really on that part of the team, but um, at Mixed in Key, we all all of our web apps, which are a big part of our business, are custom. Uh, they're all .NET though, and we. Ho- oh, go ahead. Sorry. We we host well. We we host them on Rackspace. I've done several things that have uh, scaled in different ways on AWS. Heroku kind of handles the scaling for you if you want to pay them, but I, I've done a fair bit of that. It's just uh, you know the the other end, you know where you do the caching and the, you know handling all of the edge cases on the on the device. I haven't I haven't done a lot of that yet. And that's typically like where if you're not doing it right, the users are going to think your app sucks and they're going to just delete it. So it's you have to spend a lot of time testing those edge cases. And it's, it's interesting that you have to literally go on site sometimes to figure out when you fade out of a network and you come back in what happens. And it's just, there's a lot to be done. And that's, that's kind of why I've taken the approach of, Okay, somebody else has really seen a lot of this and done it, so why try to reinvent the wheel if I, if I don't have to? Yeah, that makes total sense. Aaron, you talked about um, different ways that you know, have kind of different levels of control if you do your own kind of back-end service and you have to think through all the kind of sync problems. Do you have an idea of when it kind of makes sense to roll your own versus use parse at, at kind of what level you're not kind of resolving things that have already been solved? Sure. I think it really depends upon the solution that you're trying to come up with. Uh, the HIPAA is a, the HIPAA, uh, HIPAA rules around it for uh, data privacy is really a great example. Uh, but there's other cases where you may have a client that's just not really keen on putting their uh, proprietary data out there, and that uh, the one client we we're dealing with with the manufacturing was kind of iffy about using Parse, and they ended up not using it in the first application we wrote for them um, because they were kind of doing a groundbreaking thing with their application in their industry. So they were really uneasy about putting their data in the cloud, not some big scary word for executives. So if you really need to have tight control over who has your data, especially if you need to remote wipe devices, you know, you don't want to have people pulling databases off their app. Uh, if you want to just keep it online only, you know, that those are the scenarios where you probably want to start pulling your own uh, team together to write a backend. But for most independent people, I can't imagine they're meeting a strong need for that sort of thing. Where is the data actually stored for Parse? Do they have their own servers or do they use like an Amazon, something like that? Uh, they say it's their own servers, but I have a feeling they've written their services so that it really can go pretty much anywhere. I think they they don't really advertise where the actual data is stored, but I'm sure it's really not that hard to find out. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into the picks. Thanks for coming, Aaron, and, and sharing your experience with us. Really appreciate that. Yeah, it's been great. Andrew, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Uh, I have three picks today. So the first one is MacDev Weekly. 
So some of you guys probably have subscribed to the iOS Dev Weekly newsletter, email newsletter that goes out every week. This is a, a new one that's more specifically for Mac developers with some iOS content. And I, I think he's just still starting to get it, get it up and going. So, uh, he's trying to get subscribers and then he'll send out, send out the first issue. So it's macdevweekly.com. And then the sec, my second pick is an article, another article on Mike Ash's blog, but this is actually not by Mike Ash. It's by uh, a guest poster, um, named Gwen Raskin and she, is like Mike, so smart that when you read her stuff, you think that eh, I'm not actually a good programmer. <laughs> uh, but this this article is key value observing done right, take two. So she actually goes through um, some of the problems with key value observing, and uh, she's written uh, open source code that that fixes some of those problems. So it's actually an extension of some code that Mike Ash wrote a while ago. And this is not a new article, but it was helpful to me this this week. And last is called, it's just an article of 11 untranslatable words from other cultures that I thought was really interesting. And these are just words that don't have translations in English and are, describe concepts that are kind of funny and interesting. So I especially like the Komo Rebi. I speak Japanese. That's a Japanese word for the light, the sunlight filtered through trees. Yeah. I, uh, I work right next to a, uh, a native Japanese speaker, and occasionally I'll say something that's sort of like an American colloquialism, and he'll he'll ask me what it means, and but and I'll explain it, and I'm like that actually makes no sense when when I explain it, and then he'll do the same thing, you know, some sort of Japanese uh, cultural thing that he'll be like, yeah, I'm laughing at it, but it's not really funny to you because uh, it's a cultural thing, but I that stuff fascinates me. Yeah, and and I I, I actually didn't know that word as a sort of mediocre Japanese speaker, but it, it's a really good one. There's a bunch of others from other languages. So, Awesome. Ben, what are your picks? Uh, so I mentioned that I've spent a fair amount of time on AWS and Heroku, but there are times when I want like my own raw servers, and AWS is not something I would probably choose for my own stuff just because it's, I don't know, it's not really considered fast or cheap. So I'm a big fan of Linode. Um, I have... Uh, built a few apps on Linode if you just need like one or two servers. It's really, really good people there. Uh, really reliable. And I've also been trying out DigitalOcean, which is a cheaper SSD sort of uh, copy of the Linode service. Uh, I, I, maybe I shouldn't say copy, but it's you rent a VPS from them, and it's really cheap. I, I think I have a, a two gigabyte server uh, that I spend maybe 10 bucks a month on or maybe 20. I, anyway, it's really, really cheap. Um, and it's all based, it's all based on, uh, SSDs. So, um, it's pretty fast. And just for comparison, installing Ruby on a, uh, T1, uh, micro on Amazon takes like 20 minutes or something. Doing it on like an M1 large on Amazon's, uh, might take five to eight minutes, something like that. So it's pretty slow. And, uh, it'll take, uh, probably three or four minutes on one of these SSD. Uh, VPSs. So I will paste in links to those along with my referral codes for each. So that way I can get a few bucks if you sign up. And then lastly, a big nerd ranch uh, tech talk on API design for mobile apps. I thought this was really good. It's about 20 minutes long and they talked about, they talk about rest and just a lot of the concepts It's a good overview of uh, what you might be interested in for API design. So uh, I thought that was pretty informative and those are my picks. Awesome. 
Rod, what are your picks? All right. Um, I'll second uh, DigitalOcean. I've used it and hadn't, haven't had any problems with it at all, so it works good. So my picks are, in honor of iOS 7 announcements today, some stuff to help you get going with that. Um, there's a a GitHub project called Flat UI Kit, which a bunch of uh, flat UI components, especially if you're going to try to make your iOS 6 app look like iOS 7, that can come in handy. And then there's another project called iOS 7 Colors, which is a category on UI color to give you some of those, uh, I don't know, pastel-y iOS 7 colors. And then last week I spent the week in Colorado, and one of the things I did was horseback riding at a place called uh, Sylvandale Guest Ranch. That was really nice. Uh, they take good care of you. So that's that's my last pick. Awesome. James, what are your picks? So I've been off the grid for a little bit. I didn't really come up with a pick, but I have an anti-pick. <laughs> uh, you know, I mentioned I, I'm tr- I was trying to teach bears to code iOS. It turns out that's not a very good idea. Up there, they kind of do mostly Android, but uh, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, I've got a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is a game that I have played off and on for several years. Their newest version is uh, version 5. It's Bloons Tower Defense. And uh, you got, you've got all these towers that are like monkeys, and you can upgrade them to do different things. And it's it's a really, really fun game. Um, one other game that I'm going to pick is Field Runners 2. I've been enjoying that on the iPhone as well. So if I'm just sitting around and... Uh, I don't really feel like doing anything workish because I, I do have OmniFocus on my phone as well. And then I'll whip one of those out and, uh, you know, spend a little time on that. But yeah, I, I also use DigitalOcean and really like them. So anyway, let's, uh, we'll go ahead and, oh, we, we need picks from, uh, Aaron. Sorry, I almost <laughs> forgot you were there. That's okay. <laughs> um, two, there's actually a couple that I'm going to mention, but the, the main two that I find that are useful, especially for like core data, are uh, there's an app called Base and it's version two, Base two. It's in the Mac App Store. Uh, it's for browsing SQLite files, and I find it's it's almost like a requirement that you have to browse through the database um, when you're writing a, C- a core data app to be able to debug where the data is coming in and if things are mapping right. So that's definitely one thing that I would say take a look at if you're uh, looking at browsing SQLite off the command line. Uh, I know Spark Inspector was mentioned in the past by you guys, um, but one of the coolest parts of Spark Inspector, I think, is the be able to uh, hook into the NS Notification Center so you can watch notifications fly by. Um, and it's really great for when you're dealing with the synchronization or um, just dealing with core data in general to be able to watch things happening. Um, and then I also am mentioning um, there's a Symperium-based app called SimpleNote, which is probably a really good way if you want to see... The power of Symperium, that's a really good app to install. Uh, and then there's also the TI Core Data Sync uh, from Michael Fay that I uh, mentioned before. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show again. Um, I think we all really appreciate you coming and sharing your expertise. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks. All right, well, we'll wrap the show up. We'll catch you all next week. <laughs>